hello there, lovely people, and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined tonight by Scott. Hello. And, well, we're going to be talking about films. In particular, war films. Now, war films tend to reflect how that war was perceived by the public. For example, World War II films are often triumphant, showcasing the stoic heroes of the greatest generation as they did what needed to be done and saved the world from evil. And while, of course, there's a lot more to it than that and much room for nuance, it's not a particularly inaccurate take big picture-wise. Then there are the less popular wars, the more complex and controversial ones. Currently, that's the ongoing and nebulous War on Terror, how one uh, wages war on a concept is yet to be answered, but one war has provided more material than any other for Hollywood's filmmakers and an exploration of the USA, its government, its policies and its soldiers. Vietnam. Though politicians loving their weasel words, it was, and to the best of my knowledge may still be, officially referred to as the Vietnam Conflict, as no formal declaration of war was made. <laughs> Gotta love those proxy wars, huh? <laughs> Getting into its stride in the politicised and vibrant Hollywood of the 1970s, most notably with Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now, Nam has proved fertile ground, with the Vietnam War film becoming a rather substantial subgenre of war movies, and with the 1980s being a particularly active decade. Kicking off with the likes of 1982's First Blood and its addressing of the country and public's abandonment of the young men it turned into killers for political ideology, 80s Hollywood went hard into Vietnam criticism of multiple types. So then, in this episode, we're looking at three such films from the second half of the decade from three notable American filmmakers, Oliver Stone, Stanley Kubrick and Brian De Palma. A quick advisory though, before we start talking. In this episode, about stories set in a bloody, brutal conflict with torture, murder and more, there will be graphic and lengthy discussion of Sean Penn, <laughs> you have been warned. Yeah, a trigger warning for triggers. <laughs> That's one word for him. <laughs> there may be others coming. <laughs> uh, right then, Scott, let's fire into the first of these, which is Oliver Stone's Platoon, the first of his Vietnam trilogy. Yes. You are, I trust, familiar with the limited police action undertaken by the US of A in Vietnam in the 60s. <laughs> it proved controversial. <laughs> Enter then Oliver Stone, whose personal experiences during the war no doubt heavily informed Platoon and his further films Born on the Fourth of July and Heaven and Earth. And I would imagine also the mindset and characterization of Charlie Sheen's Chris Taylor, a son of privilege who dropped out of university to do his part for the stars and Uncle Sam, just like his father and his father's father before him did. He finds, however, like all wars once the propaganda wears off, a world of hurt. He's dropped into a platoon of the 25th Infantry Division in the sweltering jungles and struggles to find his feet. He meets and rubs up against the various characters composing the platoon, played by the likes of the extraordinarily young-looking John C. McGinley, Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker. However, the real conflict at the heart of Platoon is not with Viet Cong, but between the two de facto leaders of the platoon, Tom Berenger's Staff Sergeant Bob Barnes and Willem Dafoe's Sergeant Elias Gordon. Elias has maintained as much morality and principles as can be reasonably expected from someone sent expressly to perform violence, whereas Barnes is taking a, no doubt from his perspective, more pragmatic, take no prisoners, kill them all and let God sort them out <laughs> approach to this. Hearts and minds, but only if the hearts and minds are extracted from the bodies. 
For a while, it looks like it's shaping up to be the story of the impressionable young Sheen swaying between these two embodiments of the dual faces of war, the high-minded ideals that hopefully started the war and the desperate struggle to survive the damn thing once you're there. Although, once the actual war crimes start happening, well, it turns into a fight simply to survive with your principles while dodging the backstabbing of those on your own side who don't share them. So, it is a hell of a film, uh, particularly for only $6 million, no doubt reflecting it being seen as a risky proposition for the studio that, as it happens, paid off both at the box office and critically this despite the deer hunter and apocalypse now having done similar things by this point go figure um charlie sheen seems to have been someone who's been a parody of himself since 1991 so it's easy to forget that he was actually good in the dim and distant past like in here and he's joined by a raft of equally committed performances across the board which really sells the narrative you could perhaps make a case that this narrative uh, is being told rather heavy-handedly there's not a lot of subtlety or nuance to any of these actions and while i suppose is to show the effects of repeated exposure to the inhumanity of war a few characters just seem to go straight to outright evil as fast as possible it's not as pronounced as it will be in uh, casualties of war which we'll talk about later but it's certainly not doing much to challenge your view of wartime morality or present much of a defense of barnes and his followers mindset of course perhaps the point is there simply isn't one regardless of the pressure of war uh, so yes a hell of a film uh, not one that i would call enjoyable really but it is compelling viewing and it holds up very well here in space year 19 2019 yes uh, Lots of lots of things to do, and probably, God, is it Stone's best? It's probably Stone's best film. I've not seen all of them, but um, it's certainly a very strong contender for it, if nothing else. Uh, yeah, powerful stuff. Yeah, it's, um, first of all, Scott, to your point of, it's quite heavy-handed. Uh, well, it's an Oliver Stone film. I'm not yes. sure he has a, another type of hand to use. <laughs> uh, but for all that, it's, it's a very powerful film. It's, again, enjoyable is not quite the word to use. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's a very rewarding watch, and while it maybe shades a bit too close to like just like straight on black and white, it does have a few bits bits that make you think. I think perhaps too crucially that while Kevin Dillon's bunny is a psychopath, mm. Tom Berenger, um, who I've never seen better, yeah, uh, I saw this quite young, and he made a massive impact on me, and I was like, never been able to see yeah. Tom Berger and anything else and not think about him as Barnes here. But, yeah. um, Barnes, crucially, isn't a psycho. He's a bad person, obviously. Mm. He murders one of his fellow soldiers and you suspect it's not the first time when he does try to murder Charlie Sheen. Mm. Uh, but you can sort of see the rationale there that he thinks maybe this is for the best for whether it's company unity or thinks that somehow these people might endanger the lives of other soldiers or something like that. Yeah. So he's a much more interesting character because had he just been a straight up psycho like Bunny, mm. it would not have been anything like as compelling a character. You wouldn't have seen him as this opposite pole to Willem Dafoe's Lias. Yes, yeah, it's it's a film I I watch every now and then, not particularly regularly, but I always find it rewarding. But it's also it's not it's not by far the hardest film I've seen um, that covers this sort of ground, but it's not the easiest watch either. But yeah, it's pretty good stuff. It's um, I'm not sure if it's Charlie Sheen's best role. It may be up there, but I actually quite like Charlie Sheen in Wall Street, which he obviously did with all of us yes. like two years before that. I think that may be Sheen's best roles. Yeah, okay. Um, I wonder maybe if... You've got to think that during this film, Charlie Sheen must have the spectre of his dad in Apocalypse Now, just yeah. like five or six years before. Yeah. Um, in this... Um, and I honestly don't think Charlie Sheen's 
aided by having to do a voiceover with letters to grandma. Yeah, which don't add very much to it, as most voiceovers don't. No, but <laughs> they certainly add an awful lot more than Full Metal Jacket's voiceovers, which adds nothing whatsoever. <laughs> there's like one line right in the middle, and then like two sentences at the end. Like, why are they in there? <laughs> but we will come to that film. Again, is it well, Oliver Stone's best? I've not seen everything he's done, but probably. Um, and it's not JFK, a film which no. I know continues to make no. you very, very angry. No! But it's very enjoyable. There's a really great cast. Yes. Uh, Keith David in particular, um, amongst the supporting cast, I think he's fantastic. Yeah, it's a film that has some particularly memorable moments too. I, mean, I think William... Barber's uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings mm-hmm. I get confused with the William Orbit version of that yeah. like dance <laughs> yeah. in the 90s uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings had been used in other war films but but can you extricate that piece of music from Elias no. dying almost Christ-like um, yes. as he runs away from the Viet Cong or the NVA in that forest was the helicopters take off and that's a that's one of the most iconic f- scenes I can think of, actually. It's just, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so tied into that piece of music in particular. And the, I think Willem Dafoe is actually probably my favourite thing in this film. <laughs> I did hear someone describe this as the only film where Willem Dafoe doesn't look like a tree. <laughs> uh, which I can't see where they're coming from. Yeah. There is a haunted actually, tree or just a tree? Haunted tree, I would go with, yeah. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I would say that he also doesn't look like that in To Live and Die in L.A. <laughs> but other than that, the two films were Willem Dafoe. Looks least like a tree, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those are how we rank them. Yeah. <laughs> but he's great. There's a kind of almost ethereal nature to him. Yeah. Um, and just when he sort of appears in that wide-angle shot uh, from the mist in what most people read is a place where they're smoking marijuana, but I think it's actually heroin from the, the things I've picked up on recently. It's actually meant to be heroin mm-hmm. they're smoking. Um, I don't suppose it matters, but in that that scene, is, he is, appears almost through the mist there. He's, just, he's such a striking-looking guy, but in a sort of less tree-like way than normal. <laughs> but there's a great shot that Oliver Stone uses later in the film, and it's basically Elias' death. And just the incredible amount of acting Willem Dafoe does through his eyes because when Barnes finds him down by the river and uh, he greets him at first and then you see Barnes uh, cock his gun, or at least raise his gun, yeah. and then they cut to shot and Elias had been smiling right before that and then you see the smile disappear from his face, but only through his eyes. The, f- the shot is just framed in his eyes. Yeah. And it's fantastic. But you just see like the fear, the the smile leave and the fear like pouring from above. Yeah, just through his eyes. It's, it's a wonderful shot. So there's a few really nice visual shots like that in the film. I don't know what else to say though. Other than that, I enjoyed a great deal. It's it's strange you say Scott that it was sort of struggled to get funding. That's what uh, I read. Yes. Um, yeah. Let's say you would have think the point had been proven. Um, I know politically it might seem to be risky and anti-American and that kind of thing, but that point had been proven twice before in spades. Yes. Um, so yeah. I don't know quite why they're so concerned about it. And I probably want to mention that because um, just three years later, with casualties of war, one of the reasons it got greenlit was because a rather callous-sounding executive. Uh, 
Is it Columbia at the time? Ooh, I, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't recall which um, studio put out Cash of the War, but an executive at the time she had said, "Well, basically, these films of horrible stuff happening in Vietnam sell. Let's yeah. get us one." <laughs> and that was just three years after Platoon. It was strange yeah. that that wasn't getting the funding, but Cash of the War got it explicitly because of what it covered and that these were like those were profitable films at that point in the 1980s yeah yeah it's strange shall we move on then to full metal jacket yes let's do that like casualties of war which we will come to next stanley kubrick's full metal jacket is based on literary sources in this case the short timers a novel based on the real life experiences of gustav hasford effectively matthew Modine's private joker character and co-writer Michael Hare's memoir, Dispatches. A film of two parts, though actually it feels more like a film of two films. Hmm. Full Metal Jacket's first portion takes place at the Paris Island boot camp, where a group of new Marine Corps recruits are drilled to combat readiness by Arlie Army's gunnery sergeant Hartman. This sadistic git puts the young men in his charge through physical and psychological hardship and humiliation to turn them into a viable fighting force. Apparently one of that group that believes break him down to build him back up again is the appropriate way to train soldiers and who almost certainly has never ever considered trying an alternative. <laughs> Reacting particularly poorly to these tender ministrations is Vincent D'Onofrio's Leonard Lawrence, nicknamed Gomer Pyle by the ever-delightful Hartman. While the film is commenting on the abuse these young men endured in a job many of them never requested, Private Pyle is too incompetent at pretty much every aspect of military life that credibility is strained beyond breaking point that he should ever have been there. Ranking somewhere below Forrest Gumpin. Yeah, sure, I totally buy him as a soldier. (laughs) This poor schlump has no business being anywhere near a firearm or military unit, though I honestly don't know if it's the film or the reality it's based on that is incredulous, though I fear the latter. Nevertheless, D'Onofrio gives a great and sympathetic turn as the driven to breaking point recruit with a tragic end. The second part of the film follows the boot camp's other main character, Matthew Modine's J.T. Joker Davis, assigned after basic training to Stars and Stripes, the in-house military newspaper. After surviving the Tet Offensive, Joker's attached to a squad during the Battle of Way and sees a number of its members killed by a sniper. After finding wounding the sniper, a teenage girl, Joker ends his thousand-yard stare around the same time that the US media declares Vietnam an unwinnable war. I had never been particularly enamoured of Full Metal Jacket, remembering that I found it underwhelming and largely pointless. As such, I didn't feel any need to watch it again, and so hadn't done so for two decades. With my knowledge and experience of films vastly broadened in the interim, and my critical abilities more acute, I was, though, quite happy to return to this now. And having watched it again... It's underwhelming and largely pointless. Likewise, it's unnecessary voiceover, used two or maybe three times throughout, as we discussed. Technically, it's a well-made film. I don't think that should come as a surprise in a Kubrick piece. But it continues to fail to engage me. I come to the same conclusion now as I did in the 1990s, though, and that is that the essential pointlessness of the film is reflective of Kubrick's view that the Vietnam War was essentially pointless. This does not make for compelling or entertaining viewing, however. I'm sure my feelings about Fu Metal Jacket also aren't helped by the perception and culture around it. Like the Cult of Fight Club, I feel the more macho, harder-of-thinking fans have extracted entirely the wrong message from the film, more likely to lionise than criticise Arlie Army's Sergeant Hartman or the Crazy Doorgunner, 
holding them up as heroes or at least some sort of admirable or aspirational character, rather than the despicable torture or cold-blooded murderer they respectively are. Uh, it's almost comical too, quite how unlikable nearly every character is, and while the casual, and sometimes not so casual, racism and homophobia may be accurate, it's difficult to set through, and I can only wonder how unpleasant it may be for people who have actually been on the receiving end of that. Full Metal Jacket is very much not unique in this regard, of course. The next film is in fact considerably worse. But at least Casualties of War makes pretense to consider Vietnamese as people. In Full Metal Jacket, all Vietnamese are sex workers, pimps or enemy soldiers. For all its fame and popularity, to me Full Metal Jacket remains an inessential Vietnam War film. And if you've not seen it, then know that you can carry on like that without feeling like you're missing out. Hmm. Interesting. I still quite like uh, Full Metal Jacket. Um, spoke about this a couple of years back in the Stanley Kubrick one. Um, in fact, I like it so much, it's, uh, it's strange to think of it as not being one of my favourite Kubrick films, just because Stanley Kubrick has quite the, <laughs> has quite the, the roster of decent films to go by. Definitely right in what you're saying. It's definitely two different films that are kind of very vaguely joined together. Perhaps it would have been better had it been split into those two films, because... The, the, the first half is it's as much a film about the American army as it is about the Vietnam War. Um, certainly all of that first half uh, of it, uh, which I still find quite compelling. I, I, I didn't know about anyone who could put this sort of the kind of fight club messaging type thing. Um, I, I didn't think that was possible, but I presume you got oh, that from somewhere. It's somewhere. definitely there, Scott. It's definitely yeah. there. Well, just just because the the shouty funny man uh, is funny, I think so a lot we should. Of it, yeah. it's like don't, yeah. People have like really latched onto our Lee Army, but like, he's a terrible person. Yes, I mean, it's. I think it's a really compelling character, and I thought it was a, a like a, a really entertaining section of the film watching that kind of breakdown there. But it's not not a role model for no. kind of about it. Yeah. That's the point of it. Is you're supposed to recognise this as bad, surely? No? Um. Yeah, I, I'm honestly, I think... I, mean, and I will just say first that I, I get a lot more of the first half of the film than the second half. It's the second half that really strikes me as the pointless part. Yes. Um, yeah. But the the fact that Arlie Army's character in this became such a kind of cult thing, I mean, that character didn't end up in Toy Story yeah. because people thought he was a really terrible character. It's yes, because that's people true. latched onto that as something they liked. Yeah. People like shouting. <laughs> YouTube has taught us this. Uh, yes, no, that's, that's a bit, bit um, disappointing. But yes, the, the second half is the lesser of it. Um, I get the feeling that once it actually gets to Vietnam, it doesn't quite know what to do. Um, it has some interest for me, and it's, much of, it's one of the very few Vietnam films that doesn't restrict itself mostly to jungle warfare. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head seeing too many other films that are more in the, admittedly ruined, but urban environments uh, and that of kind of London, thing. London, weirdly. Yes. <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that does give it a slightly different flavour for some of it, but yes, it's in, what, an hour and a bit of film that is leading up to one moral crisis point that could kind of almost be thought of as an afterthought by that point. Um, it, it's a bit of a trudge around uh, Vietnam without really much aim at the end, I suppose, is a, a fairly a reasonable uh, summation of it. So, yeah, so I don't disagree with you all that much. I just, I just get more out of it than you do, um, by the looks of it. Clutch of decent performances again. I don't think Matthew Bedeen's ever been better. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything else with Matthew Bedeen. I particularly yeah. rated him at all, apart from this. Yes, and um, yeah, Vincent D'Onofrio... 
always a committed actor, but sometimes committed in entirely the wrong directions. Um, so yes, this this maybe is a certainly his most iconic, I think, performance. And uh, oh, clearly, I'm not sure I'd say always committed. He has an escape plan where he's clearly there for the paycheck. He, no, he's yes. definitely not committed in that film. <laughs> Should have been committed for taking the role. Yes. Uh, so I'm not going to argue with too much on it. I just think uh, get a bit more from it than you do. Um, but yes, it's yeah, I really enjoy it. Again, well, again, maybe enjoy is not quite the right term for given the given what's on display here. But I, I do get a lot of. Um, I, I certainly find it more compelling than you do. Let's say that, say that, and uh, I find more to appreciate in it. I think it might come down to the filmmaker, actually, Scott, because you began your response to my remarks with um, Stanley Kubrick having a lot of fine films to choose from, and mm. nah. <laughs> not so much I yeah. I think I like a Stanley Kubrick film <laughs> and it is a Stanley Kubrick film I love which, yeah. but that's Doctor Strangelove and pretty much everything else leaves me cold Stanley Kubrick does nothing for me mm. like, I haven't seen Barry Lyndon which I knew I know Craig Wax particularly lyrical about when you did your yeah. Kubrick episode which I wasn't a part of Spartacus I've not seen in a long long time and The Killing I think I've seen, but now I'm not absolutely certain. But yeah, for the rest, A Clockwork Orange, 2001, I think it's an appalling film. Well, appalling strong, but I think it's a really boring and not very good film. Eyes Wide Shut is just weird. Uh, the Shining's dull. Uh, yeah, Kubrick doesn't work for me, for the most part. I can appreciate some of his technical craft, but in terms of the actual narrative and things, I was like, yeah, nah. Fair enough. Just wonder whether, like, maybe that's part. It's part of this, like, something about yeah, it could be. Style, if, you, if, you, if you find them, I don't know if you find them a bit too clinical or maybe not. As, that, that's an often uh, a concern. Is he's just, he's seen as too clinical or not quite in touch with the humanity of his films, and that's maybe something that's uh, coming to the fore and something that needs to be so concerned with the humanity as a war film. Then perhaps that's that's part of it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, but yes, um, it continues to. To not do an awful lot for me this film, so I'll go back to. And to us, I will probably never watch this again for the rest of my life. Yes, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have. Well, actually, at some point, I probably would have gone through all of Kubrick's stuff again. Hmm. But I've done this one now, so if I do that in the future, I can just skip over this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's move on to the final of our trilogy here. Which is Brian De Palma's Casualties of War. Yes, uh, rounding off with a 1998 effort, um, which tells us of a particularly shocking war crime on Hill 192, as told by Michael J. Fox's PFC Max Erickson. Uh, there's little time to know the protagonists before that, including Sean Penn's Sergeant Tony Meserve, who, after the squad get into a bit of bother, risks his own life to save Erickson, pulling him out of a VC tunnel. However, it seems that the death of his friend, played by Eric King, causes something to break Meserve's spine, as after subsequently being denied leave, he formulates a plan to kidnap a young girl from whatever village they're next patrolling near and to carry her along and rape her at will. While it's perhaps initially laughed off as a joke, he actually does it with varying degrees of support from his squad members. Erickson is very much against it, but is kept in line with threats and violence. Even so, he's still trying to help Thoithu Lee's Than Theon, but ultimately to no avail as this slow motion tragedy unfolds. On a return to base, he attempts to get some justice, but finds little, with most willing to sweep it under the carpet until a sympathetic chaplain stumbles across him in his story, allowing a modicum of resolution to all. Now, unquestionably, this uh, and the central event of the piece is pretty powerful and affecting. How could it not be, unless you are a sociopath? As a film, though, I'm rather less convinced of the necessity and quality of it, certainly compared to the other two. Um, Mm. While it has a decent cast, and they're all very committed performances, I don't think they can escape the 
gravity well of the stereotypes they're based on. Um, pens in particular, while full of bluster and menace, is played so close to a working class eastern seaboard stock character that it feels almost exploitative. Um, Fox is likeable enough and shows enough metal to get his character over the line, but ultimately this film isn't going to challenge you or make much of an attempt to understand why someone could convince themselves and then others to do something so terrible. Again, perhaps there is no defence or understanding, but then it does leave this film with no real moral conundrum to leave you with. It's just a straightforward presentation of a horrible thing that happened that we can't learn anything from other than don't rape people. Or murder people. Yeah. For all of that, uh, while I'd say it is the least of the films here, it's still worth watching, um, if nothing else, just to witness the very early career performances of John Leguizamo and John C. Reilly. They got better. Yes, um, <laughs> they are They're quite green in this film, aren't they? Yes. Um, although it, maybe it's because his character is so, well, thick, but I did have see echoes on in John C. Reilly's performance of his role in Talladega Nights. Yes. <laughs> kind of like puppy-like co-driver friend or teammate friend thing. It was like, I, I could see some of that in there, which was a bit strange to be in see, a Vietnam film. That's what the comparing contrast should have been. Talladega Nights and <laughs> Casualties of War. Although, pretty much every film will lose to Talladega Nights, though, for not having a cougar. Yes. <laughs> that's the the furry cat kind with the big claws and stuff, folks. No. Not, not, not narrowing down. Words. <laughs> um, not other meanings. Uh... Yeah, this is... I mean, I guess it's quite powerful, but I'm not quite sure what this film is particularly saying. You're right, it's like, this is horrible. And the fact, I mean, there are a lot of reported atrocities that happened in Vietnam. It's what, mm. like, in the village in Platoon, there's a rape in there, um, and then there's just straight up murder by Tom Berenger of mm. people there. So there's that sort of atrocity committed by American soldiers, and there's that sort of criticism there. There's presumably some sort of inherent criticism in the the language used in all of these films, the way they refer to Vietnamese people, mm-hmm. um, even people who quite clearly are on the receiving end of racism themselves in their own country. Yeah. But the actual thing that happens in it, it's like, I'm not even sure why this is a Vietnam film, beyond that this happened in Vietnam, but it's kind of separate from the war itself. Yeah, I was expecting perhaps for it to make some sort of effort at linking what was going on in the war, the stress they're under, these kind of things, at making some sort of attempt at not explaining why it happened. I mean, it's not quite that, but at least giving you some sort of insight as to how it happened, how they thought this could have been a good thing. It could have been something that they were morally entitled to do, how this made some sort of sense in uh, Meserve's mind. But it just doesn't. And... Uh, it, it all seems a bit perfunctory and you get to the end of it and it's just like, well, that's this is just an awful thing that happened. And yeah, like I say, I just don't know what we're supposed to take away from it other than let's try not to have that happen again. Yeah, yeah. yeah see, because I think when you look at somebody like Corporal Clark, he strikes me as being very similar to Kevin Dillon's character in Platoon. Mm-hmm. He's basically just a psychopath. Yeah. Where it comes to, again, is the key role as a sergeant. Whereas... And bought Tom Berenger. For me, Casualties of War hinges on buying that Sean Penn lost it when his friend died, and yeah. I don't buy it. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, obviously, I dislike Sean Penn as his writing proper. Um, <laughs> having said that, there, there are films I have liked him in tremendously, and not just Gangster Squad because he was getting repeatedly punched in the face. <laughs> Things like, I thought he's fantastic in Milk. I, in a role that, by all rights, should have been intolerable 
I really, really enjoyed them in This Must Be The Place. Yeah. But in this, I just, I detested the card from the start, but but also more because I think I was disliking Sean Penn, not his character. <laughs> but I just, I never bought that that break that would have been required there to abandon all moral norms and to to suddenly do this and think that it was appropriate and that, that somebody was entitled to take this woman. Yeah. And I never bought that. And so because of that, I never really, the rest of the films never sold to me. But you can see, like, John C. Riley's character is just easily swayed. John Leguizamo's got no guts. Hmm. Clark is a psychopath, but like they're all doing it because of Sean Penn, and I just wasn't buying him, which is a problem. Yeah, it almost needs to be more of a character study of him. It needs to go further into his past, or like give us some some sort of semblance of rationale of, of where this inkling came from, because it surely wasn't born out of nothing. But you don't get any of that because you beat him at the same time as um, Michael J. Fox beats him. So. Yeah, there's there's just no way to really get any kind of insight into that character. Now, whether you want that insight or not, I don't know. But um, if you don't have that insight, then this really isn't anything more than a dramatisation of a news report and not a particularly compelling one at that. Yeah, it's, um, it's weird. I mean, where it gets slightly more interesting is with Ving Raymond's character, the lieutenant, mm. who tries to rationalise why they're not going to investigate it. Yeah. And then Dale dies Captain Hill afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like, yeah, this... I can actually believe that people like that existed. Mm-hmm. So I naturally hate them because it's despicable. But it doesn't... I don't buy the, the bit that actually led to what they're having to refuse to... or to rationalise to not investigate. Yeah. Yeah, um, certainly that that sort of section where Fox is trying to get some sort of justice, trying to get someone to take any kind of action against this is probably the most compelling part of the, the film for me, um, where he's actually trying to affect some sort of justice and just being stonewalled is one of the more interesting parts of it and gives uh, probably gives Michael J. Fox a bit more room to actually perform somewhat against type, I would think. Um, and he does a pretty good job of it. I was fairly convinced for all that. But I found him much more compelling a character, more convincing as a character than um, John Penn. Yeah. So that does help with that section. Just, yeah, ultimately it's a, a bit too far into a film that I've kind of not written off, but I've just, I've not been all that um, engaged with up to that point. Yeah. I'm just want to talk a wee bit more about Michael J. Fox in this. It's unusual casting, this coming after Back to the Future, because at the start of the film, he does feel like Private Martin McFly. Yes. He even does that sort of, like, hand across the forehead, oh, God, what, I just realised something terrible moment. Yeah. And it's, oh, oh, what's going on there? But by the end of the film, I'd warmed him immensely. Yeah. I felt very, very different towards his character at the end of the beginning. Um, and I don't know whether that's maybe the production, although it's, this is a talk a wee bit around the film. Sean Penn noted asshat, <laughs> was a, an asshat to Michael J. Fox during filming to try to affect his performance, you know, just being really nasty to him, saying demeaning things, you know. Uh, what a tiresome pick Sean Penn, Sean, <laughs> Sean Penn, what a tiresome pick Sean Penn and his like are. And the hmm. arrogance of asshats like that to presume to treat other bad people badly for your, yeah. to make their jobs unpleasant without mutual consent for something as inconsequential as a sodding movie. <laughs> I, I do not care yeah. for people like that. My dear boy, have you tried acting? <laughs> yeah. I mean, method acting, if that's what gets you into your role, okay. 
but that you make the working environment unpleasant for other people, well, you don't have the right to do that. No. That's not your choice. Yes. But yeah, that that's sort of more about how the film was made rather than what's in the film, though. In terms of what's in the film, the structure of it, there are a few things that I dislike largely because they're so unnecessary. Uh, it's one thing I'm telling which is the book ending. Like, it starts off with him uh, on a yeah, streetcar in right. San Francisco, ends with him in a streetcar in San Francisco, because he sees some Vietnamese woman who may even be played by the same woman that's... Yeah, yeah, it was her. Um, that's the rape victim. It ends up with, like, you were having a bad dream, weren't you? And then, is that some sort of absolution for him, that he didn't save her? Yeah. It's, that's a weird, weird thing, and I don't like that at all. Mm-hmm. And also, it was like, seeing this Vietnamese woman on the streetcar is supposed to have set him to this reverie. It's like, eh, you don't need to set that up. That's not the sort of thing someone's going to forget. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so as a slight aside, this, this is something that prompted someone in IMDb um, to have to add. The train that Ericsson's on at the start and end of the film is, in fact, actually in San Francisco. But- <laughs> ends with them getting out of a train in what is clearly San Francisco with San Francisco in the background but why do people do these things on IMDb what a goof uh, anyway um, yeah the other thing which is uh, I just found out recently too is that the real life Ericsson or whatever his name was I forget now uh, yeah that's right spent a long time seeking out a trustworthy chaplain to confide in and start the investigation someone who was at least the same rank as Dale Dye's character yeah. Whereas the film has him stumbled upon yeah. <laughs> while drunk in a bar, and it's like, that's kind of weird, actually. I think that sells your character better if you see how determined he is to make sure the truth gets out, not just sort of give up and start drinking. Yes, yeah, that's true. I find that an odd choice. I don't necessarily dimensions the film that much because the film has other problems, but it's it's odd when actually in real life he made a real determined effort. Yeah. Why not have that in? It wouldn't take you any more time to, to show that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's. It's an interesting film. I think all three of these films are worth watching. None of them are, strictly speaking, enjoyable, mm-hmm. but they've all got something of interest in them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're all they all should go on your list. Some of them are a bit more chores to get through <laughs> than other ones, particularly *Casualties of War*. But uh, yeah, I, I still get more out of uh, *Full Metal Jacket* and *Platoon*. I'd certainly put them on your list to to go through when you're in the mood for something a bit uh, a bit less lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, I've not. I have actually recently got a hold of it's this Heaven and Earth with Tom Lee and Jones which is the third part of Oliver Stone's Vietnam trilogy and yeah. sometimes considered the best it really depends everybody has an opinion I guess but I've not watched that yet but certainly Born on the Fourth of July is pretty interesting if you want to if you've got more stomach for Oliver Stone in Vietnam films and I might report back at some point about Heaven and Earth Born on the Fourth of July is worth checking out yes um, nothing else we're doing Oliver Stone episodes sometime soon so <laughs> Maybe work into that. Uh. You wanted to have a an aneurysm talking about JFK and how angry it makes you. I might have to set that bit out. <laughs> so, thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with us, please do. We make that easy by being on the internet, <laughs> where the stuff is. <laughs> you can contact us on Twitter it's, uh, at Fuds on Film, on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, or trusty old email podcast at Fuds if you have any thoughts on this we'd love to hear them as always so please get in touch until the next time uh, i've been drew and i will bid you adieu and scott will presumably say some form of goodbye also goodbye also you're going to say that <laughs> 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 <laughs>